John chapter 12 is our sermon text. bit of a longer passage this morning, and we won't be able to touch on every detail, but uh, wanted to give us a sense of some of the connections between some parts of the, of the narrative here in John 12. We'll read verses 1 through 37. <clears throat> this is God's Word. It's given to us for our good. Let us give our attention to its reading. John 12. God's holy word. Six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jesus found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well, for on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, "'Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord!' Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it. As it is written, Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew, and Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will also be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. 
The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was not for your benefit. This voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Christ will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus told them, You are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. The man who walks in the dark does not know where he is going. Put your trust in the light while you have it, so that you may become sons of light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. The grass withers and the flower fades. God's word endures forever. Amen. Imagine a young man entering a jewelry store for the first time in his life. Let's say he's, oh, 21 years old. He has successfully avoided going into a jewelry store or buying any jewelry up until this point in his life. But now he's going to ask a young lady whom he adores for a lifelong commitment and he knows he can avoid it no longer. And he has been told by people who would say they are his friends that it is wise to spend around what you make in three months on a ring to ask for a young lady's hand. When the moment finally comes to pay for this ring, this young man finds in himself that he doesn't really himself want this ring. He's not too enamored with it. He's not going to become enamored with it. And he starts questioning why he would buy such a thing at such a, pr- at such a price. But he presses on because having this young lady with him to death is more important, of course, than this three months' pay even though he would never possibly have imagined, could have imagined, paying something, paying so much for something like this, ever in his life, could he ever have thought, ever in a million years, why are you looking at me like I'm telling some kind of personal story here? (laughs) Devotion can be an amazing thing. It can bring human beings to do things they never would have imagined doing. The devotion of Mary, the sister of, of Lazarus, is shown to us in this passage, and it challenges us, and it teaches us about the importance of our own devotion to Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. When we consider Mary's depth of devotion today, our own devotion to our Lord ought to deepen as we are reminded of what it is that our Lord does for us. For he is the King of glory, but he does not take the normally prescribed path for glorious kings. Rather, he teaches us the kind of king that he is and reminds us of the meaning of his ministry in this famous ride that he takes to Jerusalem. So those are our three main ideas today, the depth of devotion, the kind of king Jesus is, and the meaning of his ministry. And if we would see Jesus more clearly today, we must see him as the king of glory, but as a gentle king, who thought it better for one man to take a lowly ride to death than for all to die. Mary is, of course, the 
sister of, of Lazarus, who has been resurrected in the last chapter. And so Lazarus plays a prominent role at this stage in Jesus' life. The religious leaders of Israel realize now they not only have to deal with Jesus, but they have to deal with Lazarus, who becomes this, this magnificent sign unto the power and the authority of Jesus Christ. And so in Bethany, they, they have this celebration meal in honor of Jesus. And keep in mind that this would be most likely on a Saturday evening towards the close of the Sabbath. And so seven days from now, in just a short week from this point, Jesus will be in the tomb. There are three main pictures of Mary, this Mary, in the Gospels. The first is her sitting at the feet of Jesus, learning, taking in his teaching while Martha serves. The second is at the death of Lazarus, when Jesus comes to the home of Lazarus, and Mary goes out to meet him, and she's weeping. And the last main picture is here, in John chapter 12, where she anoints Jesus with this expensive perfume. And through these three episodes, you see a really a wonderful growth in devotion to Jesus in Mary. She's eager to learn, even at the beginning, but between the death of Lazarus and the resurrection of Lazarus, and now this episode, she has shown that she has grasped finally what it means, that Jesus is worth more than anything in this life. There's a change in perspective here that we see evidence of in this episode. So what is this perfume? Very expensive, comes from a plant that would have been grown in uh, northern India, obviously extremely valuable. We read it was worth about one year's wages, so if you were to to bring that into today's lingo, we're talking about something around $50,000 in our country. That's an average one-year salary, so extremely expensive. For the men here today, I know you're wondering what kind of perfume might be that expensive that you might buy for a special lady in your life. It's Clive Christian number one, $2,150 per ounce. You can thank me later uh, for that information. So Mary brings this very expensive perfume and she anoints Jesus. Several things about this episode are shocking, um, in a sense confusing, and probably left a lot of people puzzled. It's odd, for instance, that she would anoint his feet. We read in the, in the Gospel of Matthew in this account that she also anoints his head, but John focuses on Mary anointing the feet of Jesus. And the feet would have been odd and uncomfortable, would have made people confused. But Mary is teaching us something. The value of Jesus in the face of worldly things. A perfume so expensive... Anointing the feet of Jesus shows us how valuable Jesus is. She also comes and she lets down her hair. This was something that would have been considered improper for a woman to do in public at that time. She also instantly, it seems, wipes the perfume off with her hair. And all of these things would have left people scratching their heads. What's going on? What's Mary doing? In Matthew, we read that all of the disciples of Jesus were put off by this action. But John focuses specifically on Judas and his disapproval. John does this in order to to contrast, on the one hand, how love and devotion spring forth from the belief of Mary, and on the other hand, how betrayal and rebellion spring forth from the unbelief of Judas. But what we notice here is that Judas puts forth a pretty good argument, doesn't he? It seems logical, and it seems the more logical approach to him. 
This could have been to us. This could have been sold uh, and given to the poor. We read, of course, that Judas really wanted the money for himself. But there could be many people who would make the same argument who weren't greedy, who didn't want the money for themselves. They say, why wouldn't Mary sell this and give it to the poor? But Jesus' response gives us a warning. The poor you will always have with you. You will not always have me. What is Jesus teaching here? Well, of course, we know that the mentality of, of, something, of someone like Judas was wrong. We know that anyone who would betray a friend, let alone the Lord of all, for 30 pieces of silver, that that kind of worldly mindset is, is easily refuted. But Jesus also teaches here that even behind a mentality that seeks to meet real needs, through things like compassion for the poor, behind that mentality there can be a heart that does not know anything of faith, worship, devotion, and fellowship with God. Usually it is not a heart of greed that causes one to speak up for the poor. But often in today's world there can be a pointing outward at many of the injustices that we see in the world, but then a lack of willingness to look inward and see the need for a work of God in our hearts that God would cleanse us, that God would sanctify us. There's an unwillingness to look inside and to see the need of ourselves to to give up of ourselves, wholly in devotion to God. Of course, the only way that what Jesus says makes sense is with the assumption that under certain conditions, caring for the poor is not only good, but also a necessary thing. We should be reminded that people can come up with all kinds of reasons Uh, sometimes, even in a sense, religious reasons, wrong though they may be, to avoid caring for the poor. You know, that the the biblical model that's put before us is that we are to care for the poor whom the Lord brings into our lives. First of all, that is those who have need amongst the people of God. And then once our family needs are met, we can look outward and we can apply the principles Jesus calls us to and seeing him as supremely valuable above all else. But above all of that, what Jesus says here is that no matter how valuable something is, no matter how important it may be in terms of worldly value, no earthly resource is wasted if it is offered to the Lord. Why? Because no matter how, some, no matter how valuable something is in earthly terms, even if that bottle of perfume were worth a million dollars, it would not be wasted if it were offered to Jesus Because earthly things and earthly value shrivels in the light of our great and holy and righteous God. Does this make Jesus selfish? Does this make Jesus an egomaniac? No. It's never selfish to bring people to that which they need the most. In accepting this extravagant act of devotion for Mary, Jesus shows us what? He shows us that he is the God-man. He's one in substance with his Father, the only true God, the one who created us in a way that we will only be satisfied if we come to him. He's the God of Psalm 62. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. For God alone, he only is my rock and my salvation. He alone is my fortress. I will not be moved. I will not be shaken. Is it selfish for the mother of a brand new baby in the first few weeks of that child's life to, in a sense, keep her closer to herself and almost hog her in a way? Is that selfish? No, because she is the one whom that baby needs the most. 
She cares for that baby in ways that other people can't understand. It's the same way with God. Because we need him. Because we were created for him. And because he gives us all that we need. And because of that, it's not selfish or egomaniacal or self-centered that allows Jesus to accept this kind of devotion. It is love. He is loving Mary in accepting this extravagant act of devotion because she is giving herself in love and devotion to that which she needs the most, the one who can satisfy her. One year's salary, gone in a few moments. This could have been the most valuable thing in her family. This could have been their security, that which they kept, just in case something went wrong, just in case something happened and they needed money. But Jesus has transformed the perspective of Mary. We remember at the raising of Lazarus, we, we looked at that a couple of weeks ago, and, and Mary comes out with these professional mourners when Jesus comes, and they're weeping and they're wailing. They're making a big show of it. And, and remember, Jesus is angered by this because to him it's a sign of a lack of faith. And he calls Mary to remember, I, I'm the resurrection and the life. I am more important than, than this life. And he transforms Mary's perspective to now see. And we see that she understands the absolute supremacy of Jesus over all things. So friend, brother, sister, are you treasuring Jesus that way? Are you reflecting this depth of devotion? You consider that and perhaps you say to yourself, well, if I adopt the mentality of Mary here, there's going to be all kinds of things that I miss out on in this world. Surely that is true. To live a life of radical devotion will mean sacrifice. Isabel Kuhn was a missionary to China along with her husband. And she had spent her late teens and, and early 20s running after uh, various pleasures of the world. She went off to college and she was hit head on with modernism that laughed at the idea of an all-knowing God revealing himself in Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, Nazareth and uh, our modeling our lives after him. But she ended up returning to the faith of her upbringing. She had been raised in the church and she had her heart broken by a man of the modern world. This man thought it was foolish to give yourself and faithful devotion to another human being. Isn't it funny how his thinking that it's foolish to give yourself and devotion to God uh, translated into him thinking it was foolish to give yourself and devotion to someone else. Uh, holy. So she started seeking God and searching for him in earnest prayer, asking for his comfort. And she writes that when she realized that true joy was found in Christ and it in a sense had been in front of her all along she said it's like sitting in a dark room that's illumined by a dim candle and then through the window uh, comes the blazing sunshine of the morning she likened the pleasures of this world to that dim candle and the pleasures found in Christ to that glorious sunshine of the morning and her point was this when the, the morning sunshine comes through the window will you miss the dimly lit candle of course you will not. Of course you won't. To find that God is, she writes. See, to find that God is, to see that he exists, that is one thing. But when we explore what he is, that search never ends. It becomes more thrilling the further that you proceed. What we need is for God to act upon us, to break us down, and to build us back up. And Christ comes to us as our hearts are broken in our faith in ourselves. And we realize that we need to look outward. Look to Christ. It's interesting. Uh, 
writer Oscar Wilde wrote this poem at the end of his life that reflects upon the exact account we're looking at today. He says this, Every human heart that breaks in prison cell or yard is as that broken box that gave its treasure to the Lord and filled the unclean leper's house with scent of costliest nard. Ah, happy day, they whose hearts can break and peace and pardon win. How else may man make straight his path and cleanse his soul from sin? How else but through a broken heart may Lord Christ enter in? You think of the the hymn we all know very well, reflects perhaps on this event as well. Take my love, my Lord I pour, at thy feet its treasure store. Take myself and I will be ever only all for thee. We see also that God uses our devotion in ways we don't even expect. Mary didn't know about, about the cross that was coming. She didn't understand the depth of what Jesus was doing. But we see in verse 7, Jesus says, it, it was meant that she would, she would save this for the day of my burial. In a sense, this is an anointing of the body of Jesus as he goes to the cross, as he goes to the tomb. God will use our devotion in ways we don't even expect. Secondly, we see this. The triumphal entry teaches us about the kind of king Jesus is. Two things are contrasted uh, in verses 12 through 19. You have uh, the, the worries of the religious leaders of Israel and you have the hopes of the people. The religious leaders of Israel are very worried because there's huge crowds going to Jerusalem as Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem. Some people estimate could be as much as a million people that would go to Jerusalem. Some people say probably more like 250,000 in that kind of range. But either way, a lot more people than normal. And the religious leaders, Pharisees, they're worried. Why? Because if there's someone who is a messianic figure there, you have all kinds of potential for mob action. People can get excited and bad things can start happening in their opinion. But their fears are contrasted with the hopes of the people. The hopes of the people are nationalistic hopes. Palm branches usually meant military conquest or peace that would come after military conquest. The cry, Hosanna, it means save us now. And, and they're, of course, thinking it one way, not understanding that Jesus is going to save them in a way that they hadn't expected. So it's no surprise that later on in this passage, Jesus will have to hide himself from the people. And not only to hide himself from the Pharisees for a few more days, but also to prevent this mob taking him and forcing him to become king. And so in the face of these nationalist hopes, Jesus teaches us about the kind of king that he is. One of the main clues is how Jesus rides into Jerusalem. Is this on a war horse? Is it on a symbol of conquest? No. He rides in on a donkey. And this is to fulfill a prophecy from Zechariah 9. But if we go back and we read the context of Zechariah 9, it informs all kinds of things about the kind of king Jesus is. This is what it says. Zechariah 9, verses 9 through 11. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off. And he, that is the Messiah, shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free. From the waterless pit. As I mentioned earlier, we see Jesus as a kind of gentle king here. 
That doesn't mean that he is always nothing but gentle, but in this first coming to accomplish salvation, he is. So we read that he makes wars cease, that he comes to declare peace to the nations, and that through the blood of the covenant, he sets his prisoners free. We see how Jesus fulfills all of this. He develops our understanding of the kingdom of God. He says, my people are not to carry their flags and their swords into battle and, try and, and take down other earthly kingdoms. They are to fight a different battle. They are to be people of earthly peace, but spiritual battle. For we do not battle flesh and blood, as Paul will later say, but the rulers of this present darkness. He comes to declare peace to the nations. That is, peace will be from sea to sea. And that is exactly what the gospel is, a proclamation of true and lasting peace. We saw last week how this declaration of true peace, abiding peace with God, it sets up division in the world, in a sense, because not everyone looks to Christ as Savior and Redeemer. But the fault of that is not Jesus. The fault of that is human sin that remains unreconciled, unforgiven in human hearts. And then finally, as we know, the blood of the new covenant spilled at the cross, it sets us free from the bonds of sin and death. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin in nature's night. Mine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. He sets us free from sin and death. That's the kind of king he is. And if you understand the mission of Jesus, if you understand the kind of king he is, you will rejoice in the nature of his reign. You will have immense joy in your king, understanding what he has done and what he does for you. Because you have ultimate peace, and you know that you will, not, you will ultimately not be put to shame. And that can transform your mindset in this world. This is exactly what Paul says in Romans chapter 5. Hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because our hope is in the glory of God. It's founded upon Christ and what he does for us. And then finally, we see Jewish rejection and Gentile curiosity teach us about the meaning of Jesus' ministry. The crowds are being worked up about Jesus, that much is obvious, but it pushes the leadership of Israel to the breaking point. They realize they can no longer wait around for Jesus to make his own mistakes. They need to take matters into their own hands. And just when opposition from the Jewish leadership is at its highest, it's at this very moment that we see a group of Greeks, Gentiles, and come, and they, they, they speak to Philip. They say this beautiful phrase that sometimes you hear repeated when we're talking about missions and, and, and going out to the ends of the earth. They say, sir, we would see Jesus. We would see Jesus. We don't know why these Gentiles have come for the Passover. They probably have some kind of respect for the Jewish faith. They may, indeed, some of them may be fully-fledged proselytes. But in a fascinating moment, as soon as Jesus hears this, there's a trigger And he says, now the hour has come. It's right when Gentile curiosity is at its highest in the entire Gospel of John. If you study the Gospel of John, you you see him say repeatedly, the hour has not yet come. The hour has not yet come. And now, he says, the hour is here. Why? Because his death on the cross, his being lifted up in sacrificial death, that is a death that is a necessary condition for an abundant harvest of life. He uses the illustration of a seed. 
unless a seed goes into the ground and in a sense dies and is decomposed, only then will it give an abundant harvest of life. And that's what Jesus teaches us about his death. His death is a death that will bring forth new life. It's a fountain of life. That is the meaning of his ministry. We know that he says, it's not until I will be lifted up that I will draw all men to myself. Right? He is the, the, the Messiah of the Jewish people. But he says, when I am lifted up from this earth, then I will draw all men to myself. So those Gentiles who are saying, sir, we would see Jesus. What has to happen first? Jesus must be crucified and raised and ascended. And then the gospel can go forth uh, to show people that faith in Christ is how we are saved from our sin and given eternal life. A couple more quick glimpses of the, the meaning of Jesus' ministry. We see him talk about sacrifice. Uh, uh, the, the lives that come forth from his death. See, his death is central. Only his death is the one that brings forth new life. But the lives that come forth from his death follow him in sacrifice. It says this in verses 25 and 26. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. My Father will honor the one who serves me. See, we're not called to hate our lives on an absolute scale, on an independent scale, but rather Jesus is calling us to prefer the life and the calling that he gives to us rather than our own definition of what is right and meaningful. To believe that God is a sovereign God leaves us with no other choice, does it? To believe that God is sovereign, we believe in believing that we're saying he has the right to tell us how we are to live and how we are to respond to what he says to us and declares to us. We see also the centrality of glory. Jesus says, Father, glorify your name. And we see that, again, it's, it's not an, an egomaniacal thing. It's not self-centered. Because bound up with the glory of God is the very best thing for us. Our salvation. Eternal life bound up with the glory of God. That God glorifies himself in the salvation of sinners. So, do not let these things, these wonderful stories... Don't let them be merely cultural holiday markers, marking out for us the time of the year. Rather, let them be wonderful signs of the Savior and his work for us. And then heed the words of verse 37. Being mindful of our own hearts, mindful of our proneness to wander, being easily led astray. Think about even people who saw this firsthand, all of the things that Jesus was doing. Many of them did not believe. And so, in light of all these things, and considering Jesus, the kind of king he is, the meaning of his ministry, grow in devotion as you consider the fact that you see, that you now see, even more than what Mary saw when she anointed the feet of Jesus. And rejoice in that humble ride that Jesus took to Jerusalem. Not a, a ride of glory, but a ride to glory. A ride on its way to glory. Knowing that as the king of glory, he first needed to humble himself so that he might glorify himself in the salvation of sinners. Ride on, ride on in majesty, in lowly pomp, ride on to die. O Christ, your triumphs now begin, or captive death and conquered sin. Ride on, ride on in majesty, in lowly pomp, ride on to die. Bow your meek head to mortal pain. Then take, O Christ, your power and reign. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We praise you. Thank you for Christ and 
of the life that he came to live. We know that he loves us. And we see his love for us. We see how his love for us, his love for you, his commitment to your will, brought him to the cross and did not turn to the right or the left, had his face set to that which he must do to reconcile us. Father, we thank you that he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. We come through him, confessing him, believing in him, trusting in him, and praying in his name. Amen.